99% of the people out there want to make good living. And by good living, I mean make five, 10 times what you could at your current job, be able to spend time with your family, have control of your business, be able to build generational wealth. You know, all these things can be done with a lifestyle business. What you can't do with a lifestyle business is you can't make Chris Soccer rich. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. So Ian Taylor and myself, we all love this new podcast called Startup. We decided we'd make a show that sort of is a companion to it. Startup is a story of a guy named Alex Bloomberg. And if you listen to a lot of podcasts and radio, you probably have heard his work. I mean, he worked on This American Life, and he created a show called Planet Money. I remember listening to Planet Money when I was you know, driving to my job in Carlsbad, California. It's just so cool to see him start a new company and one that creates high-quality podcasts, no less. And he created a podcast that sort of documented the whole process. And actually, why don't we hear it in Alex's words? I love podcasts. I love making them. I love listening to them. But there's all kinds of podcasts out there, from a couple people talking around a mic to the kind that I make and that I have a particular soft spot for, which focus on storytelling and journalism. And of course, we have a soft spot for those kinds of podcasts, too. So if you haven't yet listened to the first 14 episodes or season one of Startup, you should go do that right now. We'll wait for you. If you have, we hope you find this discussion interesting, and we hope that you'll help us continue it, either on Twitter. There's been some talk. I think Terry Lynn and Chris Saka were talking on Twitter, and maybe even Alex will join the conversation. So maybe you could help us reach out to him. Of course, a discussion of this one, and this is a spoiler alert, will be at tropicalmba.com slash Gimlet. So before we jump into it, I just want to set the scene, because a lot of the tension in startup revolves around Alex's need to get investment to start this company. And so there's this whole, should it be a startup? Should it be a lifestyle business kind of tension at the core of it? And that's why we really wanted to jump into it. And so to sort of set the stage, I thought I could play an excerpt to give you a taste of the amazing production quality and just the vibe of this show. So I don't know what really fair use is. So Alex, I hope that you don't mind if I play about a minute of startup, one of my favorite minutes. This is an excerpt of episode 14. We're going to hear Alex talking about one of his most prominent investors, Chris Saka. And if you don't know who Chris Saka is, I encourage you to do a few Googles around there. He's done an amazing interview on This Week in Startups and is a really cool character in this whole story. So let's just listen to that excerpt. Episode one of Startup began with me pitching Chris disastrously the idea of this company. If I were calling an Uber right now and it said, it's going to be here in two minutes, and that was all the time you had, uh-huh. what are you doing? So I'm making a network of digital podcasts uh, that we will monitor, that, that, will, that, will, that is going to meet. <laughs> Sorry. But then in episode six, he and his partner, Matt, decided to invest, which I told my co-founder, Matt Libra, about over the phone. I just got off the phone with Matt, Matt you know. Right. Uh, and uh, I'm in. They're in? <laughs> That's awesome. And having Chris Saka as an investor, it has been awesome. But also, if I'm honest, a little stressful. 
Because all of a sudden, Chris and I are in this brand new relationship. A relationship unlike any I've ever had before. Chris is no longer a guy whose money I want. He's now a guy whose money I have. And he has opinions about how I'm handling it. So we're going to respond to this in three parts. So the first part, we're going to talk about what startup represents in the zeitgeist and in the podcasting world. In the second part, we're going to discuss some of what we see as like the ironies of the venture capital world. We've got a couple bones to pick in that section. And in the third part, we're not going to just critique. We're going to try to offer some solutions. Like maybe what if Alex came to us instead of Chris Saka? What would we say from a lifestyle business perspective? And just a caveat, we're using startup as a chance to talk about some ideas that we're passionate about it. But this isn't a criticism of startup. It's an incredible show. We hope that you'll go listen to it. It's certainly inspiring for us. Okay, so we'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. All the show notes, links, and discussion will be at tropicalmba.com slash Gimlet. This discussion, by the way, is with my business partner, Ian, the boss man, and with Taylor Pearson from taylorpearson.me. So we start off this episode by discussing, you know, what we thought was inspiring about startup. So I think the smart move that was kind of inspiring to me was he built distribution first. So I'm reading the traction book that everyone's been talking about now. And the common thing he cites is founders never build tracks and they always get too focused on product. And he did this like really creative thing where he was able to build the product and leverage the product to create distribution. So he had his distribution strategy mapped out before he even launched the business. I go back and forth because I don't think this business should have taken VC. However, that drama created a lot of story traction. So I'm sort of torn by it, right? Because the arc of like taking and getting big money and then having to do something with it is really dramatic. Whereas maybe if he was just like, you know what, I'm gonna make like a really good living telling good stories. It might not have been that interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. And what also might have happened is it would have made, like you said, for a much more boring show. Essentially, it would have just been his wife yelling at him about all the credit card debt would be my guess. <laughs> Ian, what do you think? What was something smart that came out of the series for you? You're like, wow, that's really clever and new. I think along the same lines, basically, is that he launched his business by telling a story. And that's what you see all these internet marketers doing these days, you know, is like doing it in front of people and launching their business. Like Brandon Dunn is like a great example of that. You know, he's like on Twitter, like promoting his stuff constantly. He's like, oh, I just finished writing my sales letter. I'm so tired. Like all these like humble brags, you know, they're doing the work right in front of you so you can see it. And that's what Alex did. And I think it's really smart. And I'm going to listen to all his other shows, aren't you guys? Yeah. The part of the reason I'm so attracted to this show is it's a popularization. It's a professionalization of what we've seen in our space for years. You know, the Rob Wallings, the Mike Tabers, the Brandon Dunns, the Dan Norrises. We've been watching this for years. The Practitioner, Preacher, Podcaster. I'm going to disagree too with the narrative arc thing. So I think there's some truth to that, that the gravity, because he's raised all this money, kind of makes a bigger narrative. But what's scarce isn't great stories, it's great storytellers. And he's a great storyteller, right? Like the best sales guy in an organization is still selling the same product. He's just telling a better story than everyone else. Like he could have told a great story about anything. He just happened to tell it about raising a bunch of money. Well, to that end, did you guys learn anything about podcasting or business from listening to Alex's story? 
I certainly did. I think I learned a similar thing that they learned too on the Gimlet show, which is like how dispersed I guess podcast listeners are and like where they're coming from and the people that we think are podcast listeners yeah. and the people that we have no idea about. You know, these guys were like really shocked. They had projections like, I don't know what it was, like 20K an episode listeners. It turns out it's 200K. Trying to figure out where all these people are coming from is really exciting and interesting. There was an episode, I can't remember which one it was, but it was a similar one that we hear, Dan, all the time, which is like, oh, I was listening to this guy's podcast and then I got turned on to her podcast and then through this friend and that friend. It's like people go through this maze and they find this podcast. Yeah. And it's because it's so illegible and it's so hard to find these things right now. It's it's pretty crazy. It's like telling your friend about a television show, but not telling them what channel or network it's on. It's like, good luck. <laughs> and that's how people have to find podcasts right now. I was kind of inspired by how many resources it took to get to that 30 minute segment. Like there's one point they're going back yeah. and they're talking about how much it takes. It takes like 60 hours of recorded audio. It's an epic production process of what it takes them to get to this like one amazing 30 minute story like, every two weeks. All I thought Dan and our editor, Arison, were up to is smoking thin cigarettes, you know? It's <laughs> like, I had no idea. You know, I recently heard Fred Wilson talk about the power of blogging, talk about how important it was for him just to articulate his ideas in ways that were legible to other people on a regular basis. And I think that's one thing I really thought was amazing about what they're doing, which is they're learning so much by being transparent and legible to the outside world. By saying, here's what we're doing, here's a clear way that you can get value from it and weigh in, people are coming to them with resources, with advice, and plus they have to face down their own demons. I think it's a really difficult mindset transition for new entrepreneurs having to be disagreeable. And Alex strikes me as like one of the nicest guys in the world, but people are mad at him. Like he can't please everyone, even though he's a very nice, interesting guy. I think it's a really good lesson in uh, the types of interactions you're going to have to have if you want to be an entrepreneur. There's a real value in this, in being transparent. You're going to have to up your game in terms of the way you communicate with people. So Taylor, in your view, what is startup whispering? What's the sort of hidden message behind the popularity of this show? Startups are sexy. Don't worry about understanding the economics. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the overlying message I got. And I think one of the big things I walked away from listening overall was startups are sexy now. It's like really sexy to like founder is a very sexy word in certain circles. And like a lot of people like put that on your LinkedIn profile or whatever because it sounds cool, not necessarily because it means they have a profitable or successful, however you want to define that business. And I think we'll come back and touch on this, but if you understand the economics and the implications and what that entire ecosystem looks like and you want to go raise venture capital money, that's awesome that like that option is now available, but it's not really laying out what all those implications and what like the second and third order effects and cost are of that decision. I totally agree with that. Sitting here in Austin this week, South by Southwest, like I see a bunch of people walking around with their corporate t-shirts. Probably some of those people are employees. And I think one of the things that I listen to on the show is like everybody is working these long hours and they're like very, very excited about this process. And like it's not clear if like any of these employees have equity shares or anything like that. But like one thing is clear is like everyone is super stoked to be like sacrificing everything in their life to be a part of this project. And there's something very exciting about that. And I think Part of the reason why startups are so sexy right now is because they kind of infuse you with that purpose and that excitement. I think one of the things that I'm thinking about in our business, Dan, is, and I think we've done a somewhat good job of this, but like, how can you infuse that kind of purpose and that excitement into a company? And it doesn't necessarily have to be in like startup phase all the time. 
you know, because right, you get four extra hours out of each employee every day. And then, right. <laughs> if you go from corporation to startup, you know, one of the other distinctions that was a tension underlying this show was the distinction between artist and entrepreneur. And I'm curious as to where you guys think that line sits, because, you know, the whole series opens with Alex announcing himself as a storyteller as an experienced one, as someone who loves stories and felt like there needs to be more of them in the world. There's a lot of artists and entrepreneur behind that. What do you guys think about the distinction? So I don't like this question at all, actually. I think it's something I've run into because I identify as both in a lot of ways. And I think it's a false dichotomy. And increasingly, the mindset I have about it is I see myself more as an investor able to deploy either the artist or the entrepreneur as I want. So I think kind of the thing I go back to with that is the four-hour work week. And what was kind of revolutionary about the four-hour work week was he redefined currency, right? So you can make money, you can have time, you can have mobility. Those were the three he defined. But, you know, you could have art or excitement or whatever. All those things can be currencies, you know, and maybe your art produces profit. Maybe it doesn't, but those are all things you can choose to invest in or not. And those are just all trade-offs and decisions to make. There's not like a, you have to choose between I do art or I'm an entrepreneur. I'd like to take a segue to go into this VC thing because I feel like this is a conversation that isn't had enough on the internet. So let's go into a little segment I'd like to call the ironies of venture capital. So I was sitting at a startup event that Dave McClure from 500 Startups hosted in San Diego about a year ago. And he's sitting up at the front of the room before he comes on. And he's kind of joking around with the crowd. And he starts his talk and he's talking about being a venture capitalist. And he goes, you know, if you think about it, being a venture capitalist is a pretty sweet business, right? Like I write, I sit around, I talk to entrepreneurs, I fly around the world. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, man, that sounds a lot like running a lifestyle business. <laughs> you know, you wonder like all these guys running venture capital firms, like why aren't they running startups? Why are they all venture capitalists? Okay, episode 14, I think it was the most important episode for me in this whole thing because Chris Saka got back on and, and he started to talk about the distinction between a lifestyle business and a startup. And he gave a pretty good definition. He gave his definition of what a lifestyle business is and what a startup is. And when he's explaining what a lifestyle business is, of course, he's talking like, yeah, you know, it's like basically you can make some good money, but like, you know, not enough money for me, basically. (laughs) So what I really take issue with here is a couple of things. Number one, I know people that have lifestyle businesses that make a ton of money and they have a ton of fun and they have a ton of freedom. And number two, it was never really brought into question whether or not he should take VC money or not and in what this business would look like if it was a lifestyle business. And number three, when Chris Saka was talking about Travis, you know, he was talking about he gave this whole story of him playing Wii with his dad on Christmas. Travis, the founder um, of Uber, just to be clear. Yeah. He's yeah. kind of like, at that moment in the show, they were contrasting Alex's personality. Basically, someone who doesn't want to like give up everything in order to win money life, right? Like, Because he's got a family. Right. He's interested in podcasts. He's like... A very talented, exceptionally talented, not a freak of nature. And Travis from Uber is basically, he's one of the Avengers. And Chris is interested in finding and working with Avengers. It's obvious why that is because Chris benefits greatly from having these kinds of personalities and these kinds of people that don't have families and they don't care about anything except for their startup. Chris is massively incentivized to find these people. The real issue that I take with that is that that's not 99% of the people out there. Yeah. 
99% of the people out there want to make a good living. And by good living, I mean, make five, 10 times what you could at your current job, have a bunch of time off, be able to spend time with your family, have control of your business, have plenty of money, be able to build generational wealth. You know, all these things can be done with a lifestyle business. What you can't do with a lifestyle business is you can't make Chris Sacker rich. Yeah. And I think that that's, <laughs> that's the whole issue here. I think it really is. And I felt similarly emotionally galvanized. Like, I was shocked because, I mean, this guy's he's pitching his script, you know. And when you look back over the first season, the first 14 episodes, most of the dramas come from the fact that they raise VC. You know, the whole episode about whether we should start more shows to spend all this money, like, are we going to, heaven forbid, become profitable too soon? How do we raise money in the first place? Like, all the drama came from this decision that wasn't really evaluated. And we could have had other sorts of drama, like, what's the quality level of our show? You know, the artistic direction, the product. We could have talked a lot more about that. But instead, it was really about, like, what do we do with all this money? that we have now that we don't really need. I have found some other ironies. Try this on for size. I thought it was very interesting how one of the world's greatest podcast storytellers, I think Alex has distinguished himself as that now, his story worked for everybody. It worked for the Google product team who worked for him for free. It worked for the world's leading naming, apparently, business naming firm based out of New York City, Lexicon. They worked for him for free. It worked for armies of listeners who enjoy the show. It worked for armies of would-be investors and advice givers and commiserators. It worked for pretty much everybody except for the VCs. <laughs> Did you guys notice that? Because what a great irony here is like everybody's on board with this except for you guys. It's a small little bubble and I think that it's a very interesting bubble, but it's definitely these dudes' worlds, you know? Like Alex could have started a small business and I think small businesses are, you know, there's 28 million, 30 million small businesses in the United States. Over 50% of the working population works in a small business, right? And a small business is generally anything below 50 million annually. Right. So it's like small businesses are the fabric of this country, you know, and they employ more people and they change more lives, I think, than startups do. But startups are sexy. And also, I think that's a false dichotomy. So I think back to like Jason Cohn, like just because you start as a lifestyle business or bootstrap company or small business, you can go raise investor capital. Like if he got one year down the road and had a bunch of traction, had a bunch of listeners and was making a good living and running a successful business and hanging out with his family, he goes, you know what, I really want to turn this into a billion dollar company, he would have had more to go back and show investors. You know, like Jason Cohn, who founded WP Engine, ran it bootstrapped, I think, for the first two years and got to a certain point where he thought there was this huge market opportunity that he wanted to scale into. And then he went and raised investor money and had more leverage as a result. Not necessarily an either or. I bet a lot of these investors put their money in for vanity reasons, like for fun reasons. And even that was made explicit in a few cases. So it's weird too that then Chris Saka comes on the program and is like, hey, I'm concerned that you guys are becoming profitable too soon. Like, that's dangerous. You should be really spending more of this money. Alex goes from somebody who's a great storyteller to somebody who's basically supposed to be like a great strategist or a, a great organizational scaler, which might not be the case for him. So there's another danger there. I'll just put that out there because I want to get to this final point in this segment. And this might not be an irony, but it's annoying to me that VCs have completely monopolized the how to build a business conversation in this space, right? Because by having that conversation time and time again, they win, right? That's their lead channel. That's why VCers, they do podcasts. That's why it's 
Chris Saka probably made this investment. That's why Fred Wilson, who's ridiculously rich, still blogs every day. It's because by leading the how to build a business conversation, they're getting leads. They're getting people to come through the door looking for money like Alex. And one thing that's shocking about it is when you listen to these conversations between Alex and Chris and all the other investors that they're pitching, the investors are less interesting than Alex, right? Alex has seen something that they don't really see. They're talking more in generalities, like saying words like scale and multiple and tech innovation and things <laughs> that investors say. But you know, platform. Al- yeah. Alex, on the other hand, is a guy who really sees the pain of like, hey, I love this variety of storytelling and there's not enough people that can sustain it and do it. And this is a real opportunity. I mean, so I think that's one of the really frustrating parts is like, Alex is the guy here who sees how to make value. Now, it might not be Uber value or Airbnb value, but it's a lot of value. He can create great shows. And even the way he does ads, at some point, he casually mentions it's $6,000 for an ad spot, and they're making like $25,000 an episode. You can run a business off of that. You can make your family happy off of that. You can focus on your art off of that. You just can't make Chris Saka happy off of that. And yeah. I think that that's what really annoyed me is like, hey, man, Alex, you shouldn't be like going to these guys asking them for advice. Like they're just telling you what's going to make it work for them. And I just really believe in Alex's vision of great podcasts, great stories. Obviously, he's started this conversation. So, I, you know, I don't know what the lesson learned is there, but it definitely felt like a weird situation, uh, a weird situation and one that I felt emotional about listening to. I don't want to get all Mr. Money Mustache on y'all right now, but like if these guys had saved a couple dollars, I mean, Alex, like, you know, he had worked for years and years or whatnot. Like if these guys have saved a couple dollars, like we might not even be having this conversation. I mean, we're all kind of skeptical on what the value of these VCs is outside of the money that they've brought to the table. Well, if you take the money off the table, like it's going to be really interesting to see in the future if we get to hear the story of how instrumental these VCs are in helping them grow into a great business. All right. And I think you're right, Dan, to say like, hey, man, this guy, Alex, he's got a vision for what this thing can really be. Does he even need their help? All right. So that's a great seg. Let's give our pitch to Alex about what maybe we would do if we were in his boots. All right, Ian, you set me up beautifully because I do want to go Mr. Money Mustache on Alex. Chris Saka at one point said, what matters is the multiple. And what I want to say, no, what matters is the margin. And you've got a great one. You've got a producer, a co-host, an administrative person or whatever, and you're making 25 grand an episode. You're doing all right. So I got a couple questions for you. Yeah, where's your savings? Like you said, that's fine though. First off, the basic question of the location independent entrepreneur, why are you building an office in Brooklyn? <laughs> you know, like let your people work from home. You can go office route later, but I don't see any point in that. Why don't you, I guess they're inheriting this culture from like, we all got to be in the room together. We all got to be boiler room, you know, like 12 hour days. It's nonsense. You can actually write down what it takes to produce an episode and people can go about producing those episodes from wherever they choose. It's possible. A lot of people do it. So you could have basically started this business on much, much less. I kind of have this magic number in my head, guys, for lifestyle businesses, which is 50 grand. If you can get to 50 grand in sales, that's a living, right? And once you can get to a living, I feel like that's like your first foothold on the rock face. 
And when you can get that solid foothold, you can look above, evaluate the path, and make your way up it. So I don't see any need to get like these super smart, you know, I went to Northwestern and I want to make $125,000 a year to produce podcasts. That's ridiculous. Maybe you can get to that someday, but why not start out just produce your own podcast, put out one a week, hustle up the ad model, hustle up the revenue, get to your 50 grand and then start employing a remote staff. You know, I don't see any reason why with a couple friends, a couple shows, you can't be making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year working from home with a remote staff. The other thing is, you know, leverage the story like you've already been doing. You've got great people that love this stuff. They want to get involved for less than they would be making at the big broadcasting firm because they can work from home, they can live anywhere, and they get to be involved in something cool. So you don't even need to start doling out equity at the beginning. So this is my advice is to focus on your art, get to that 50 grand first foothold, and then yeah, maybe you can take on investors at that point if you're saying, you know what would be cool? We take exactly what we did here and we do it with 10 other shows. That's my advice. So for me, the first thing you start with is this like Ramit Sethi social scripts thing. Like there are these hidden social scripts, which people follow, right? He's sitting in New York. He's around all these startup guys. All these guys are talking about raising venture capital. And so he kind of like falls into this and not necessarily because it is or it isn't what he wants. And he's really thought about all the implications. So recognizing that that is a script and then to sit down and get kind of clear on what he wants. And I think the problem with asking that question is it's kind of nebulous and you don't really know until you get started. And the question with raising venture capital is once you've raised the venture capital, you can't walk away. So the venture capitalists like to jump in and say, you know, one can never go to zero, right? You're never going to go into debt, but you can give up five years of your life. Like if you get six months in and you just raised $10 million and you go, oh, it would have been cool if I'd started a lifestyle business. You can't just like call up Chris Sock and be like, hey man, thanks. Not really feeling it. I want to go back. Whereas if he starts, if he does like the Jason Cohn WP engine thing and he gets a bunch of traction and it's going really well and he's making a few hundred thousand dollars a year or per episode, whatever he gets it to, he can always call up Chris Sock and be like, hey man, I got a bunch of traction and a bunch of customer intelligence and all these data points and this team built out. You know, if you want to plug in $10 million, we want to go sky's the limit with it. The other assumptions we made don't hold up as well. So, for example, we thought in the plan that we drew up over the summer, we'll get three shows launched and then we'll spend a year, a full year, growing the audience and growing the revenue for those shows. And then, once we've got it all figured out, we'll launch our next couple of shows. But looking at the numbers today, that plan doesn't make as much sense. I've been feeling like the plan doesn't feel, it feels too slow now. Like, I feel like it, like things have changed so much. It would be nice to sort of like start building out some other shows sooner rather than later. I feel like we've already learned, we know a lot now, and like, you know, the fact that we're so far ahead on our projections means that we could safely, you know, start spending more money. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're ahead of where we wanted to be. Yeah. But I don't know. Taylor, I think this buttresses your point brilliantly, which is only a few months into this thing, all of their business plan that they raised the money on, they could have just lit it up in fire. It's completely pointless. So that's kind of my idea of like, the business plan should just be get to 50K on your idea and then see where it stands. Because just like you said, now all of a sudden their business plan is up in flames and they're sitting there with this giant investment on their shoulders. And so everything's changed except the fact that you've got these investors with expectations. All right, Ian, you're the final EC. I don't think this is a shark tank. This is more like a dolphin tank. 
You know, it's, 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 friendlier. it's friendlier. Oh, come on. That's a terrible <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> the podcast is amazing. He's done like a really good job. And I was sucked in for all 14 episodes. I can't wait till season two. I think my advice would be this. You guys, I feel like we've pretty much buried the startup talk. So what I think I would focus on is creating content. And you can tell that they're already trying to figure out like how many shows they're going to have. And I think my advice would just be to go with like one or two shows and focus really hard on those and kind of get it down and understand the model and how it's going to work. This is something that I like watched, you know, Adam Carolla do, you know, like the guy's got like 10 shows. And I just want to like pull him aside and say like, dude, just focus on the one show because his one show, I think over the years has actually gotten worse. Yes. Like it used to be much better when that was like all he focused on because he could really mold it into something special. And so I feel like Gimlet might turn into the same thing. You know, if they got like all these shows going, like they might all kind of sound the same or I don't know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm worried. I just hope that they focus on the one or two shows. But, you know, the problem of course, is like, well, ad revenue, it's like you can only charge so much per episode because you can only inject so many advertisements. And it's like, well, we got to make the investors happy. So we're probably gonna have to have 10 shows. So again, that's where the art might start to get pulled apart a little bit. So Taylor, it's one thing that you go on about, but this whole space is just dying for new revenue models. And I think there might be a middle ground between what you heard in startup where Alex basically gave his listeners a chance to invest versus what used to be done with public revenue radio. You know, remember when you used to listen to public radio, they would say it's our investor drive. And it was like really annoying. You know, they would do it time and time again, because really the benefit of being an investor wasn't that good. And it was complex. Whereas I think these online shows could offer a lot more, a lot cheaper to their listeners. Could you imagine a show like Startup at the beginning of every season calling for an investment round? It's kind of like a Kickstarter, like to be a gold level investor in that season, it was like a thousand bucks. And like for that, you get a on the website. You get to come to the behind the scenes conference call, investor call at the end of the season. You get to log on to the forum or whatever. There's just some benefits that wouldn't cost Gimlet anything to provide. So I do think, yeah, you got to do more than just ads if you're going to do that. And I think there's potential for that. And there's so many product models too. I thought of listening to the show where, well, one's like kind of what you said, which is Dan Carlin from Hardcore History. And that's basically what he's done with that. He solicits donations and he's not making a killing, but he's making a living producing this amazing podcast. And then the other guy I thought of was John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneur on Fire. I'm sure there's tons of like backend products that if he made this like amazing podcast for startups, he could turn around and do something like what John Lee Dumas has done with entrepreneur on fire which last time i looked was not a bad business not a bad business all right guys well it wasn't a bad business talking to you guys this week really appreciate your perspectives we'd love for this to be the beginning of the conversation so if you guys would like to join us we'll all be in the comments at tropicalmba.com slash gimlet Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.